This is a show about the technology category that has quickly captured the world's attention and imagination. We sit down with some of the smartest and savviest business leaders and technologists to unpack what the rise of generative AI may mean for you and your business. I'm your host, Ryan Kurt. Welcome to the AI Lab. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? It's going great. It's been a couple of weeks since we prepped, and I feel like a lot's already changed in the, the AI world. It's crazy like that. 100%. I feel like it changes every day, every hour almost. Yeah. Uh, before we jump in, uh, why don't you introduce yourself uh, to the audience, and I, you know, we'll kind of jump in and go through a couple of topics. But yeah, we'd love to hear more about your background first. Awesome. Happy to. I'm Alex Lehman. I'm a VP at Sapphire Ventures. We invest in B2B enterprise software, typically kind of series B and later. And we have, we're based in the Bay Area, an office in Austin and London as well, about 10 billion under management and operating out of a $2 billion fund, which is our sixth fund and, and you know, 70% undeployed. So a lot of dry powder for uh, exciting companies. And I had kind of had a roundabout way of getting into investing, but was originally pre-med on the med school path as the daughter of two surgeons and, and found computer science kind of late in college uh, and totally pivoted, changing my path. Uh, taught myself how to code a little bit and, and knew I wanted to wind up in software eventually. Uh, so here I am now on the investing side, but been spending a good amount of time in and around trying to understand the, the Gen AI tech stack and yeah. Focus a lot of my time around infrastructure, infrastructure software, so data DevOps security. Awesome. Well, I, I definitely want to jump into the kind of your perspective on the generative AI landscape. Before we do that, though, maybe a little bit on the, the venture capital side first, because, you know, I think before this AI boom, it, it did sort of feel like maybe there was a this perception that uh, not that investing has stopped because that wasn't the case at all, but that maybe there, you know, people were keeping their money on the sidelines and it was kind of a hard time to get capital if you were a startup entrepreneur. And then in December or whenever this AI boom just kind of took over, that's completely changed, right? So I guess from, I would love to maybe just start the conversation hearing from you. What's the last six months been like as an investor? Uh, because you know, obviously it was hard to predict exactly when this AI boom would happen. I think we all maybe thought that it would at some point, but what's the last six months been like from your perspective? It's definitely been interesting. It's been a kind of a crazy market. I mean, I would agree with you. Like things were slowing down quite a bit last year, the, the pace of funding, especially at the growth stage, you know, where, where Sapphire plays started to slow down a bit, certainly just across the market. And it, it seemed like you know, it was getting quite dead that this, there was just kind of this explosion with the, the release of ChatGPT and kind of OpenAI coming on the scene in more of an uh, aggressive way, in a way that actually was reaching people's minds, develop, both developers, startups, et cetera, becoming more accessible than ever to build generative AI in your product and led to an explosion of startups and innovation that seemed to have resisted the impression and valuations, the the slowdown in funding that the rest of the market was starting to, to see a little bit at the, at the definitely the series B, I think A's and C's kind of still were pretty active and then started to slow down maybe a little bit, but certainly things have picked back up in a big way. I know at Sapphire, we've made three investments already this year and probably towards the, the last half of last year was much quieter for sure. Yeah. So I guess getting into the, 
the tech space a bit more with generative AI. The podcast is, is designed to be focused on business leaders and people that you know kind of work at maybe bigger companies trying to figure out what's this going to mean for my company and my industry? How do I reduce the risk from this, but also how do I capitalize and become opportunistic and, and you know, reap the benefits of generative AI. How have you, how do you see, I guess, generative AI finding its way inside of big enterprises? And I guess more specifically, more through, you know, application layer innovation, where people are kind of wrapping stuff around these existing models or, you know, doing their own custom model development. Like, how do you see this kind of playing out so far? I know it's early, but would love to hear your thoughts on that. For sure. I mean, I think it's top of mind for everyone, especially across enterprises right now. How how can we leverage generative AI to make us more efficient is one way, right? Like people are using tools to make themselves internally more efficient across their employee base, whether it's, you know, building some internal version of a chat GPT that integrates with your company's internal knowledge base or your internal docs uh, and developers using it to help them write code, generate unit tests, which we know already is quite ubiquitous, you know, with GitHub Copilot generating some something like 60% plus of, of the code that's being written today. And then, you know, the other thing that's super top of mind is enterprises are trying to find ways to, to integrate LLMs into their, their own product itself. So create a better user experience for their end customers. Um, and I think there's a few different ways that we're seeing this play out and to, to be frank, no one has a, a slam dunk playbook or really has, you know, knows exactly how to build this the right way. But I think what's happening is you're seeing open source models and pre-built, pre-trained models available that have really gotten good enough that you have to do less and less customization from scratch. It doesn't really make sense to build the models completely uh, on your own anymore, just given how good what's accessible is. And then, you know, running enormous foundational models for any given use case, it, it doesn't really make sense in every case, right? It's, it's overkill and can be quite expensive. So companies are finding a way to distill these models down, direct them at specific use cases, train them on specific data and building these kind of distilled extensions of base models, you know, around specific functions. And one good example is kind of training them on customer specific data so that you can actually help serve your, your end customer with more specificity. Yeah. So is there any, you mentioned customer data, is there any kind of function inside of big companies that you're seeing maybe low hanging fruit type use cases? It, when you say customer data, are you talking customer service where somebody has an issue, they can interact with a bot first, or, you know, they're, they're coming into your help site and they're able to get self-service. Where inside of these companies are you seeing maybe the, the lowest hanging fruit applications? Sure, yeah, there's a there's a number of different ways. The two you mentioned are, are really solid ones. Our, our portfolio company, MoveWorks, is, is actually leveraging LLMs to power their, their conversational engine for enterprise IT support and workflows automation. Uh, and they, they really built their stack around a mix of open source and proprietary models and have built kind of their own orchestration all around now up to you know hundreds of models they're deploying on their own infrastructure uh, and, and it basically is improving the conversational experience with it, what is a chat interface but their, their product's always been you know chat cent centric and so this was kind of an easy and innovation to make that user experience far smoother to get to the issues quicker and be able to interpret a wider variety of different kind of language styles and, and requests and still be able to serve, you know, solve the whatever support issue they may have been having quicker. And I think that's 
you know, there's a lot of use cases that that obviously fit in to, to the natural kind of way that your product is already built in the, in the space it's serving. And there's, there's pretty, you know, ingenious ways outside of that as well, that outside of chat, for example, people are using it to power recommendation engines or, or using LLMs for anomaly detection and security use cases. And I think you're just going to see an increasing amount of use cases that, that aren't necessarily ones that are the super obvious. Yeah. And, you know, I think you and I, we've both lived in the tech world uh, for an extended period of time. And so I think the way that technology companies are reacting to this new set of capabilities is probably a lot different than the non-tech companies, the companies that are maybe uh, just they're behind from an AI and just general technology perspective. So what, what I've seen is there's almost this, it's overwhelming, right? Anything that's labeled AI now, everything's changing so fast. You've got people boasting, oh my gosh, this is going to create trillions of dollars of market opportunity. It's going to, it's going to steamroll entire industries. On the other hand, it's, you know, humans are going to go extinct. And so it's scary. And so I think my point is a lot of leaders are almost on the sidelines a little bit and just kind of saying, Hey, well, let's just wait and see what happens because you don't, you don't want to pick the wrong model or spend a lot of money and time deploying something and then finding out it's now obsolete because somebody else released another public model that's way better. So if you were in the shoes of a CEO or somebody trying to figure out who's not a tech person, what, how do I approach this? Do I just wait or how do I dip my toe in uh, the water so that whenever we do figure out the good use cases and we feel really good about the strategy, we can sprint really quickly. You mentioned MoveWorks already had a lot of stuff kind of built in place. So they're able to sprint really quickly. But what, what would your advice be to a non-tech company on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the hesitations are valid. You know, you have a lot of issues around security, data privacy, accuracy, like you mentioned, not knowing what models are necessarily going to produce as far as getting to the right or appropriate answer. And there's some use cases where these things can be catastrophic, like if in healthcare, for example, you don't want to play fast and loose with a model that's giving patient advice, for example, without knowing how to ground it, how to make sure paving the way that that within the bounds of, of both the law and understanding how to handle the, the customer data and sensitive data, et cetera. That said, I think, you know, the sooner the better in terms of just experimenting either it, you don't have to pay a significant amount to kind of mess around with some of these tools that, that are open source available and making sure that you're data scientists, your, your developers are, are familiar with the tech stack and what it would mean to integrate these products, even if that means building some kind of ML ops pipelines and, and orchestration internally, that's flexible such that it can leverage, you know, a variety of different open source models as they change, as they innovate without huge changes required to your internal infrastructure. And I think that's something that we're seeing the the more prepared, you know, companies try to do early. And I think when you do that, it's going to be, you know, more of an offense, put your, put your company in more of an offensive position than, than a defensive one where you're scrambling to catch up. Because I think if you're not going to do it, someone else is going to come build with, with this eventually. And yeah, maybe today in the enterprise, it doesn't look like production ready in the way that the market is kind of valuing some of these tools, some of these products, but I believe that eventually we're going to start seeing it 
used in production in the enterprise and array. And I think it's just a matter of time. Yeah. So being agile, I think is the kind of the, the buzzword uh, that would take from what you just said. And uh, I think the other thing that is interesting is uh, people view this technology as either there's bias and everything. It's, it's either a threat or it's an opportunity and it's, it's completely both because it's a totally commoditized technology in the sense that there's this huge convergence on language models and, and all the generative capabilities. It, the differentiation between what they're capable of is becoming less and less. And so it's this, this mass technology that you have to start using some way and somehow because it's so accessible. And to your point, it's so inexpensive to get started. There's obviously use cases that can get very expensive and very complex, but just to make your company AI proficient is not a big lift anymore. Uh, I mean, I've even seen, you don't need to hire anybody to become the AI expert. You can just kind of pick a few people inside your company and the ones that are most interested in learning about it and taking the lead you don't need a background in AI or machine learning to, to start using these tools. And so I'm just kind of regurgitating what you said, but uh, I, I would agree, just move as fast as you can just to get ready so that when the opportunities present themselves or the risks present themselves, you can be on the offense instead of the defense. Yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, of course, machine, deep understanding machine learning doesn't hurt, but I do think it's more accessible now than it, than it ever has been. And there's, there's a ton of low risk use cases that you can start with where you don't need to understand the model. But of course, like if you're touching something core to your business, then you got to understand every in and out of how it operates. You mentioned data security and, and just general kind of hesitancy and accuracy uh, from, I guess, the investor perspective. I know there's lots of companies popping up to solve these issues, right? And the big tech companies, they're all working on these things as well. Are, are there any developments that you've seen you can just pick one or a couple security, accuracy, trust in general. What development have you seen that's that's kind of attacking these issues? Yeah, you know, there's a lot, a lot of conversation about it. A lot of really, really early startups being funded around ideas of, hey, we're going to need this. And I would say, at least from from where we sit, it's far too early to see exactly what these are going to look like, exactly how these are going to be built, because the tech itself is evolving at such a rapid pace. It's like, until we know what it is we're solving for, really, and trying to protect and how the model itself and the, all the orchestration around it really works, and then how that shows up in, in production when it's in your product interacting with you know users and your customers, I think it's like... It, chicken and egg question of, can we build a, a protective guardrails for something we don't even fully understand yet or know exactly how what it's going to look like? And so I do think we're just early in terms of really having a good idea of what that will be. I think data privacy is a huge concern. How do we handle, you know, once your company's, one sim really simple example of that issue is companies have no idea what their employees are, are even putting into chat GPT or how proprietary internal data is, is being handled after they, after they input it. Right. And, and seeing GDPR comply, for example, it's, it's not as simple anymore as a simple deletion. If there's, you know, another iteration of an LLM has already been trained using that data. And I think these are things, these are things that are no longer super, one, they weren't data privacy and PII, et cetera. It wasn't easy to solve before. And now it's even more 
complex. And so I think, yeah, it's a lot to bottom that come there. On the issues of, of accuracy, I mean, I think people are certainly concerned about that. I think there are a few ways that people are combating that initially, right? You can reduce model hallucination by by grounding your prompts with, with relevant information, existing data to, to give the AI more context uh, or limit the possible outcomes that, that your model can accurately generate. So there's a few ways to kind of keep that under control that people are now starting to, to do better. And especially, you know, when it's being used in production, but, you know, every day, every, some article about, oh, like so a lawyer used chat GPT and it cited a bunch of fake cases that yeah. weren't real or something like that. Like we need, we need ways to understand, you know, what's real and what's not. I think he did that in a courtroom. Too. <laughs> it's, it's no good, right? Like, <laughs> place to do that. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you're bringing up a good point. I had a Chris Hammond, who was the narrative science founder on a couple of weeks ago. And, and he was kind of talking about how I think a lot of people that are new to AI or just they're becoming more aware they struggle to uh, understand that these models aren't just one thing. It's They're not necessarily a, a great source of knowledge, although they can be used as an incredible source of knowledge if you're giving it access to the right underlying content and data. But where they're, I'm not going to say perfect, but where they're exemplary is, is as a fluency engine, where if you tell it, like you said, you can ground it in very specific restrictions, you know, hey, I... I want you to, uh, you know, automate RFP responses, and and I want you to only use the 1,000 RFPs we've ever responded to, and we're going to give you only the best of the best, the most accurate. There's no incorrect information in these answers. Great. This is the only information you're allowed to use, right? As an input. Now, regenerate RFP responses whenever we get a new one. The, the probability of that output being inaccurate or hallucinatory is almost zero because you grounded it in the input data is this. Um, so I guess my point is you can really use these systems in so many different ways. I think you mentioned anomaly uh, triggering and different sort of, uh, you mentioned recommendation engine. It's such a dynamic set of te technologies that you can't just say it's, it's only this or it's only that. And I think that's where a lot of innovation is going to come because there's aspects of these tools that are very safe and they are very ready for the prime time that are, we're so far away from having a firm understanding of what they should, shouldn't be used for. So it's just a very, it's a very dark and gray area is, is how I've come to think of it. Totally. And ultimately it's up to your company, your employees, your developers to make sure yeah. to double check things, right? Like to make sure it's being used correctly and that you're doing what you can to make sure it's as, accurate or sane as possible. When you think about just policies, uh, you've talked a little bit about this, but if you were, you know, the legal officer, or the, the head of policy for a big company, uh, how do you bridge this gap of we native and immersed in this, but they can't expose our brand and our company to undue risk. Uh, so are there principles that you would recommend people take with that? I think, again, it's, there's no perfect playbook because we don't even know everything about, about how it's being used. But I would say at the very least, <laughs> try to mandate, you know, internal proprietary company data is not being fed, you know, it's even in your customer's data, for example, not being fed into, into some of these open source tools where you don't know exactly where it's going, how it's being used. There's other ways to, you know, build Gen AI into your tech stack or into your product 
without having it be, you know, feeding into, into these public or open source models, right? You can host a copy of a, a foundational model on your own private cloud. For example, there's companies like Cohere mm-hmm. and others that are enabling enterprises to do that. And people are absolutely using that as a way to, to keep the, you know, the walls of their, of their proprietary data, their customer sensitive data, their own IP more private and secure. And I think, you know, those are two things that you can do as a start, especially if you're, if you're in a highly regulated industry or dealing with sensitive data, a lot more and more companies are dealing with sensitive data every day. And so I think those are, those are two basic ways. I would say it has to be a conversation with your employee base. It's, it's going to have to be, you know, you have to set the standard like, Hey, this isn't something we know exactly what it's going to look like that we're going to be able to solve for with one like beautifully written AI policy that we send to the whole company, but this is something we're going to have to monitor and make sure we're on top of and put in place as it evolves, just to make sure we're, we're being as informed as possible and in our approach. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that the practical side of this is most people are using this at home, right? You know, whether it's to think of a good recipe or just play games and, and just have fun with it, it's, it's a tool that people are continuing to get better at and there's little barrier to access. And so you've got this incredible technology that people are using on a personal level and you bring it into the workspace. There's lots of risk there, but at the same time, practically speaking, it's impossible to say you can't use these tools. Are you going to use it on access on your work computer? Maybe, you know, so it's a very great area. I, I love the idea that you've got to make it a two-way conversation and maybe the best ideas will come from your employees. The reality is these data concerns and, and internal data and proprietary data have existed before, before LLMs, before generative AI, right? These, the issue of, you know, what can employees copy and paste into Gmail and send to themselves is an age old problem. And now it's just, it's a step change in complexity, I would say. Yeah. I was just reading, I forget the stats, I won't give an exact number, but a high percentage of a cybersecurity and data security incident due to human error. And we've got a lot of technology that may be to make mistakes already, right? It could be an opportunity to just shine a spotlight on the need for better employee training. Cause I think right now employee training around this stuff sucks. Like it's just so bad. Um, you take a test and it's like a check the box year. Most people don't take it very seriously, but with the power that bring an employee base that might create a nice incentive, a carrot, if you will, where Look, you can use these tools at your job, but you've got to go through like some, it's not a weapon, but it it can be weaponized. You've got to go through this approval process, this training process to become certified to use it. Uh, I don't know. That does seem like a pretty good idea. Yeah. I mean, look, I think employees in general, when they hear the word notary training or their eyes immediately kind of, you know, close or they go into a a slumber, but. It is something to think about, right? Like how do we establish some guardrails around how it's being used? Uh, last time you and I talked, I'll kind of tee up, which maybe is the last one we get into, unless there's anything else that comes up. There's this idea that usually the big tech companies think they've got so much more resources to do development. Google's obviously been at the forefront, Apple, et cetera. But I think with this new wave of artificial intelligence, there's not a lot of people in the world that actually have a lot of experience developing and fine tuning and building products around these models. I'd be interested to hear you on where is the innovation going to come from? Obviously it's going to come from both, 
but how do you see playing out where you've got startups that maybe have the best talent in the world in some ways around AI versus big companies that have the end and the money and the infrastructure and the data security. But it seems like there's a lot of factors that all be in place to really push the envelope forward. How do you see that kind of playing out between big tech versus startups? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. And I think, you know, again, all my answers sound, I sound like a broken record, but we're still in early stages of seeing how it's going to play out. But I do think there's kind of trade-offs on both sides. I think there's been an enormous explosion of startups building in this space and receiving funding, you know, to even developers in their t spare time, even if they are working at one of these big tech companies are building open source tools on their own, trying to figure out how they can utilize agents to improve their workflows, et cetera. Um, I would say the trade-offs are on that startups can move quicker. They'll be less bogged down by, you know, existing legacy architectures. And because of that, they better be, they might be, you know, better positioned to take advantage of the, the latest innovations in the space, which we know is changing rapidly every, every day. And like you said, it's about agility. And then on the end, you know, they may lack the resources, especially from a talent perspective, I think, uh, talent, compute, capital to actually build, scale, maintain the inner internal infrastructure that you need to support, support these capabilities at scale in production, right? And competing with big tech has ever been easy because of those factors, especially just the massive cost of talent that, that's historically been required. But at the same time, right, it's been more accessible or, or affordable for, for smaller startups uh, as it is today. And it's likely only to become more and more true over time. And, and so it's a little bit of both. I think you're seeing a few startups align themselves with a hyperscaler or a big tech company in order to get resources for compute for, you know, some of the capital intensive building and, and actually deploying and managing that this requires initially. And I do think that is going to be a factor in kind of who succeeds here as well. I think you can't do it without support from big tech. And I do think big tech certainly has a head start here, right? This actually has a lot of this tech was built internally at Google a number of years ago. And it's the technology has existed. It just hasn't been made available to, to the average developer until more recently. And I think that's the kind of step change we're really seeing. And then seeing that fest immediately spread and change and be used in so many different ways is stemming from that. Yeah. And I, I think it's also, I like what you said about how it could, it's a partnership between big tech and startups, because uh, I mean, we wouldn't have even had this boom if this little company called OpenAI, which they, they've they've been pretty big for a while, but you know, go back a year or two ago, some people decided to break off from Google and a couple other companies, and they went on their own and they had this novel kind of breakthrough. And then obviously they get all the interest from Microsoft and others. Uh, it does feel like a meritocracy type environment where if if you develop the next best whatever in this space, it doesn't really matter if anybody's heard of your brand before because the ecosystem of developers, the ecosystem of tech companies, they're, they're going to gravitate towards whatever best, fastest, safest, whatever that thing is, because all these technologies are so easy to integrate now uh, that it is a very merit-based system. And we've seen that with Google. Obviously, Google is going to do amazing things in AI they already have, and they, can they will continue to. But just because they're Google didn't mean that people were going to use their stuff, right? And so it's kind of forced them to be better and, and have a better integration plan, have a better whatever, um, which I think that's very exciting because I think for a time, 
it wasn't necessarily just about who had the best technology. You know, marketing mattered and branding mattered. It still does. Packaging. Uh, but this feels a lot more just based, which is kind of exciting. I agree with you. I, I think it's a really interesting kind of dynamic, though, because on the on the downside of that accessibility that anyone can use this, let's see what people can build. It's much harder to differentiate over the long term in terms of how do you build, if anyone can have access to these tools now more easily, how do you build something that over the long term has a moat that can have a competitive edge? And where will that competitive moat be formed? Is it going to be the people who have access to the most data? Because in that case, it still might be the big tech you know, players that come out on top. I just think, yeah, we're going to have to see. I mean, I think there's a few different ways that you could potentially differentiate over the long term. Um, one being you know, a model from scratch, or you build or customize uh, models in a way that is incredible. Like, a, for example, life sciences, drug development specific LLM that you've built and trained and on data that, you know, is it's far better than, than what your competitors have. Um, that may be one, but it's, it's an interesting question, right? Like you're seeing these Jasper AI, for example, or um, copy, et cetera. These tools blew up, became, you know, generated a lot of venture funding, had a lot of hype, did really well, kind of got to a pretty big scale because they, they went to market quickly with a product that worked that people wanted to use. And then there's still a question of over the long term, though, can OpenAI just release something that completely competes with that and charge nothing, then where does that leave some of these other startups? And I think it's a question people are trying to reckon with now and plan for to find out how they can to remain you know, competitive over the long term. It's a good way to finish because it just highlights how there's so much we don't know. Uh, and if hopefully we can talk again about this down the road, I'm guessing we'll know a lot more, but then there'll be a lot of other things we identify that we don't know either. Uh, I think your point is consumers and users end up determining winners and losers. And it's always very hard to predict how the sort of people, you know, they, like you said, Jasper AI and others, uh, even if there's a better, cheaper option in the future, I, may, people might just not switch because it's switching's hard. Cost, the cost of switching sucks. And so, you know, it's just so hard to predict what hundreds of millions of people and their behaviors, how they're going to evolve over time. Uh, but no, this was, I love this conversation. I, I, you're the first person I've talked to on here that has the, almost like the broad kind of like you sit in the tech world, but you're, you're just deciding where to put capital in, at work. And so it's a very different type of perspective than uh, someone who's building technology or me, who's just talk about it. And I interview people. So I, I just love kind of having your perspective on this and to have you on again in a couple months as, as things continue to progress. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it and would absolutely be honored to join and continue the conversation. Everything I may have just said could be completely irrelevant in a day. So <laughs> it'd be great to check back in late down the road and see how relevant everything still That's is. That's why we have timestamps and, you know, no <laughs> one's going to hold us to it because like you said, everything's changing so fast. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Ryan. Really appreciate thanks, it. Alex. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AI Lab podcast. If you are a business leader trying to better navigate the world of generative AI, connect with us on social and at the AILab.ai. You'll find more content and conversations in both places. See you next time.